Hey, hey, Land Mavericks. In this week's episode of the Land Maverick Podcast, we have the honor and privilege of interviewing the one and only Dave Dennison. Dave has several land businesses that he runs. He oversees a team of 17 and counting, as well as being a full-time business owner in the financial planning space. He's a pretty phenomenal guy. I have nothing but great things to say about him. This interview was extremely insightful, so you're in for a treat, my friend. Go ahead and grab that notebook and be ready to take some notes and what have you, and let's go ahead and dive into today's conversation. The Land Maverick Podcast. Everything you need to know to crush it in land investing. And with that, Dave, welcome to the show. Man, it's an honor to have you. Thank you, guys. It's a long-time listener, first-time caller. Yeah, man. Do you listen to our podcast? I do. I do. Actually, I pretty much exclusively listen to Land Podcasts. So wow. heard the Josiah thing came out not too long ago, which is a trip because we're going with him to Puerto Rico here pretty soon. So I have tune in. You better believe it. That's fun. Yeah, it. What feedback do you have? Let's get some public feedback. <laughs> some public feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Way to make it awkward, Jerry. <laughs> Stop talking about Korean spas. <laughs> <laughs> are, are we getting naked when we go to Puerto Rico, by the way? I, I need to know these things. I don't know. We probably should. <laughs> but I just convinced uh, Justin Pichet, Matt Walt, uh, Kendall Lejeune to all do the body scrub at the Korean spa in Houston next next week when I'm there. Nice. AJ from Supercharge will be there. I don't. I haven't talked to, to her about the body scrub. It's a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> that might be a little awkward. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that'll be fun. Feedback. I think um, the guests are great, you know, just having people on. Some people that haven't been on other podcasts before is always fun. People that you don't hear from are cool. I think always having, you know, some prepared questions is always great, you know, you go to. Do you guys have that or is this more going off the, the cuff? Because I don't remember like, like Kendall in his podcast, for example, asks pretty much the same questions throughout, which I don't think all podcasts should be like that. I don't know. So Jaron, you used to spend like three hours doing a very structured template. Not three, probably an hour. <laughs> none of us, he was realized none of us read it. <laughs> and so yeah. now, So now I'm like, who's that, bro? I don't get time for that. So we just kind of show up and we get... Yeah, we just make it up as we go. Well, Dave, to kind of get into a more focused conversation here, <laughs> for those that have been living under a rock and don't know you in the land space, can you give a 30,000 foot overview of who you are, what you do? Your three different land businesses, all that? Yeah. Well, a lot of people probably don't know me. I'm I'm not a guru. I don't have a course. I don't have a, don't have a coaching program or anything like that. But basically I'm I'm a, a land investor. I'm a financial advisor. So I kind of marry these two worlds together. Started got in financial planning twenty years ago, got in land investing six years ago. Started out just like Drew in the Land Geek program, where our great friend Eric Wong uh, and I met, which that's a whole funny story kind of to itself, just a God moment, I think, of our two paths colliding. And got into Land Geek basically, learned some of the basics, really loved all the term stuff, loved all of the fact people actually want this in financial planning. I'll tell you, it is hard to get clients because there are so many advisors out there. And land has just been such a refreshing additional business to have because it's like, oh my gosh. People love this stuff. You know, I'm not just one of the next financial advisor around the corner kind of a thing. 
So yeah. it's been a blessing. It's been awesome. Um, I just continue to try and learn and grow and have a big passion for getting land investors together in the same room. Cause I think so many of us are siloed, you know, land geek has like their thing. And if you go out of their thing, they practically like kick you out <laughs> of everything <laughs> or like land Academy, they're kind of siloed. I think RE tipster is an exception uh, that that tends to be kind of more welcoming and not as like, if you bring another idea, that's not ours, we're going to kick you out of the group. Mm -hmm. Land geek banned me from their group because I posted about our Korea event. They said it was a competing business, even though it's halfway around the world. I don't know how they think that's a threat. I'll plead the fifth on, the, on those guys. <laughs> but I did want to circle back to you, Dave, on the specific land business stuff that you have set up. So you are running financial planning for real estate investors, for land investors in particular, or just general? So I started in the business 20 something years ago. So things have evolved and changed over time. I'll, I'll give you the short version of the story. So I worked primarily with white collar people initially. A lot of, I was in Seattle at the time. So there's a lot of Microsofties or Amazon people, firefighters, uh, paramedics, those kinds of folks. And then I did this huge leap of faith and bought an acquisition. Luckily, I'd been blessed with receiving an inheritance, which was substantial enough that I had no debt at all. So our house was paid off. I had no student loans, no car loans. We owned everything. And um, I said, you know what? At the time, I'm 27. And I really don't like the fact I don't own what I have. And so I searched around and found this acquisition in Minnesota, which brought me and my wife out here now over 15 years ago. And it was rough because it was August 1st, 2008, right before the financial crisis came about. And number one, the, the guy I bought clients from kind of lied about a lot of the numbers that were presented and uh, stuff that was his revenue wasn't really his revenue and stuff like that. And so we went through a really hard time digging out of that because I, even though I had a substantial inheritance, I blew it all on the acquisition and levered up with some family loans from my cousins and my folks. And so here I was now, and I had no debt before. Now I have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And revenue that was supposed to be there it was supposed to be like a million bucks in revenue. Well, it turned out it was like 200, 300K. So it was literally one third and plus the financial crisis is going on. So I started to pivot over time. We survived. We made it. We were scratching, trying to figure out what, what to do and how to do it. But luckily, everything worked out and started making our way back up. And I started to go through this time in my life where my youngest daughter was born super duper prematurely. She was less than a pound. She was 12.4 ounces when she was born. And we got to be in the hospital. Part of the acquisition that I made was I had a couple, a few physician clients, and I really loved working with those guys. I read a book called Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port, I think his name is, and um, great book if anyone is in, in the consulting type thing. And um, I really decided I want to focus on docs. So I started a podcast called The Freedom Formula for Physicians, which is how I met Podolsky. Podolsky got put on my podcast. And um, so now today I have quite a few physician clients because of some of the branding and that kind of thing. But I also work with a lot of the same white collar people, a lot of people with stock awards and options and, and things like that. A lot of business owners. As I'm getting more and more in this land niche, I'm getting more real estate type people. Other land people are doing some consulting with me. 
but that's really like revenue wise, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of everything else. You know, it's like, yeah, $300 here, $600 here. It really doesn't move the needle in my life, but I love talking about it. So it's kind of fun. So that's a long answer to your question. And then your land businesses. You're unique in that. I think you're probably the only land investor that I know of that has three different land businesses that they're part of. So let's dive into that. That's very interesting. You know, Justin Sleva might have me beat. He probably has like six or seven different entities now. (laughs) But so as I got into the land business, right, one of the huge things that I know the two of you guys have partnered on is getting capital. So initially in that model, right? You you buy a property, you get a down payment, you typically get monthly payments. Sometimes you get cash sales, but a lot of time it's it's a lot of monthly stuff. Well, the problem is you start running out of capital really quick, right? Because you're sending out mail, you're doing all this stuff. And so initially I was just using my own savings, which was a few thousand bucks a month to invest in the business. And then I started using 0% interest rate credit cards and used my um, line of credit that I had and tapped my 401k for a loan. And then I started partnering with other people as well, because the debt, of course, there's monthly payments, right? So you don't want too much debt on yourself. And so if you partner with people on the equity side, like you guys do with folks, then you don't have to worry about paying someone monthly on something. You lose a big chunk of the profits, but you don't have the risk of the debt. And so I started partnering with people. And so that's how Eric Wong and I really became more and more connected was um, he started funding Uh, working with me on a whole bunch of deals. And he was being kind of the passive person and just collecting the checks and me and my team were doing all the work. And so Eric and I, I said to Eric, you know what? Hey, I'm paying for all the mailers, doing all this work and stuff. And I'm having to pay the commissions for everyone. So my cut ended up being far less than his when you really calculated it out of of the profit. So I said, why don't we just form a company together and we'll just split the profits 50-50. And uh, at the same time, there's another gentleman that I did did the same thing with. He funded a whole bunch of deals. So I said, hey, let's just form a company together. And so in all cases, I was kind of driving it. And because I built my team up to a point, I started splitting people off. I was like, okay, you go to this business, you go to this business, and I'll keep on growing my main one generation family properties. So it was really at the time when everything was kind of like 50-50 splits was a common thing in profit sharing at that time. Now I would do like 60, 40 or 70, 30 instead, just because of the amount of work feeding the beast like I do. And frankly, I'm even not trying to partner with people on those terms deals anymore, just because it just doesn't make sense. I just use debt instead for those. So that's how the different land companies came about was just like, hey, let me pass this on to someone else, give them some control. Hopefully they help to carry some of the load which Eric has been awesome in helping to carry some of the load. But really, uh, a lot of it is me driving the boat as kind of CEO of all the different companies. And then do you you have 17 employees right now? Is that correct? Yeah. Across yep. all three? Actually, that's that's all in generation family properties. If I added up some of the other, it'd be closer to 20. Okay. They're not all full-time. You know, some, most are part-time, but some are. Now, systems is one question, but leadership, how many direct reports do you have out of those 17? Mm, five. So wow, Dave, so you have 17 to 20 people. That's incredible. That's a lot. That feels very overwhelming to me. Can you dive into structure as as Drew just briefly mentioned is one thing, but leadership is an, a whole other piece. How the heck do you get 17 to 20 people aligned and focused on one mission? That just feels extremely overwhelming to me. Well, it's reality is, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's a lot of herding cats sometimes, you know, trying to get... <laughs> 
everyone pointed in the right direction. Reality is, you know, as you hire people, you get to kind of see who who are your A players, and you try and put them in a position where they can take load off of you, right? So not only doing the tasks of talking to sellers or sending out mailers or whatever, but also managing staff. And so it's been a process. You know, I've hired so many people over the years. And guess what? The vast majority don't stick around, right? But I do have people that have been with me now for four years, three years, five years. So it's taken time, effort, and energy to get the team in place and be at the point where other people are managing parts of the process and I'm I'm not have to doing it. But at the same time, it's not like I'm not like Drew working only five hours a week on my land business. You know, I'm probably putting in, oh, let's say 20 hours a week. Something like that is pretty typical for me. So the way I do it with the people that directly report to me, which is my sales gal, uh, my COO, and one of the intake managers, maybe it's primarily those three. So Dave, having 17 employees in one company, I understand how how to build systems and put them in charge of stuff and be okay with them crashing the ship and steering the ship. But what I am still wrestling with is how to nurture my employees in a way that they feel valued. Do you have any employees that their love language is quality time? And if so, how do you spend a lot of time with them when you're so busy? Absolutely. So with running my financial planning business, absolutely. I'm really, really busy. Calendar is booked. And so what what I do is with my key employees, of which there's four, I have my COO. I have my gal that I recently hired for texting. I have an intake manager and I have my sales gal. Those are kind of my four direct reports. And so with each of them, I have a one-hour meeting every single week every single week where we're checking in, I'm hearing what's going on in their lives, um, what are struggles that they're having. I have each of them make an agenda ahead of the meeting so we can kind of chat and connect and see what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm making that commitment to them in terms of, hey, I'm going to spend time with you every week. And then, of course, there ends up being some videos being made from time to time where we communicate that way too and we're not live. There's a lot of uh, chat on Messenger and Basecamp and emails. And so I think probably one of my strengths that allows me to do this is I am extremely responsive. Yes, you are. Some people in this business, you know, they have their kids, they have a W-2, they, they have hobbies and, and whatnot. For me, really, the businesses are kind of my hobby. Yeah, so you are extremely responsive. In fact, even to someone like me who you really have no financial incentive to respond to me. Actually, you kind of do now with the Puerto Rico event, but you're very responsive. And I always wondered, how do you manage that without interrupting your flow during the day, your productivity flow, and then also making sure that you're spending quality time with your family without being interrupted? Because Anytime I text you, you're usually responding within 60 minutes. Now, are you just good at like sneaking in little texts here and there? Are you at the urinal texting? How does... <laughs> what I do in my day is I'm very structured in it. Every minute of the working day has my calendar blocked out. 
So, and it's color coded, by the way. So I will typically have a meeting with like a financial planning client. It's a yellow color. And I will allow what I call bumper time, usually after most meetings, which might be 30 minutes to an hour. That lets me get caught up and respond to people. And then I usually will have another meeting, whether with an employee or financial planning or whatever. And then usually I'll have another hour of bumper time. So it allows me the space to respond to people pretty quickly. The other thing in in my house, at least, is I think that gives me an advantage is my wife is often doing ministry events and, and different things. And so I often use that time to work and catch up on life and things with people. So I think, um, and at the stage my kids are in, where they're not four, five, six anymore, you know, my oldest is 18 now and my youngest is 11. They're not four, five, six years old, which really require a lot more time and energy than when they're older too. Yeah. So, cause I've wondered, I'm, I would say I'm as, as responsive as you, and it's gotten me a lot of brownie points with all of my connections but I've always wondered, what if I were to shut out the world for six hours a day and, and actually do productive stuff? How would that look differently? Because people would get responded to later. But because when you respond to me immediately, I feel valued, right? Yeah. And when I do that to other people, they feel valued. And there's a there's a trade off, right? You're interrupting your flow in order to get back to people faster. And I've always wondered, you know, where where is that break even point? I guess it depends on what your job is. If you're a computer programmer, you might not want to be interrupted for four hours at a time. But if you're running a business like we are, maybe we have the manager's schedule. You know, the the 2009 essay written by the Y Combinator guy, manager versus maker schedule. So maybe maybe we're on the hourly time slot and, and it's okay. And we're not really sacrificing much by getting back to people very quick. I don't know. Just some thoughts. Yeah, I, I want to chime in there because you guys are making me feel bad over here because sometimes I get bogged down and don't get back to people as promptly as I would like. But in my defense, and for defending those that are a bit bogged down, and I guess this is like open for like pushback or dialogue. I'd actually like your guys' thoughts on this. I feel like if I prioritize promptness or time over quality, I'm actually disvaluing the people in my life and network. So like, for example, if somebody sends me, like if Drew, you send me something, you know, and I glance at it and I realize that it's going to take me a minute to formalize a thorough response that I actually like give my heart and soul to, it's going to take a minute. So I might need to wait until after my whirlwind of meetings, Tuesday through Thursday, in order to like make that text message. Whereas if I like chose to just get back to people quick, I feel like I would have lower quality delivery and it would just be like fluff, like, yeah, yeah, or, you know, just quick and easy. What do you guys think about that? I mean, in an ideal world, obviously, I would be able to provide swift and high value communication. But I think oftentimes I find myself, even in like uh, coaching sessions with Land Mavericks, I often will come into the meeting, you know, maybe five minutes late or so because the previous meeting I'm like fully delivering and thoroughly answering their questions and not, you know, jumping off right at the minute mark in order to make sure that they got everything they needed in that session. So I have two tricks that really help me. The first one is that I have texting, I have iMessage on my MacBook so I can text people from the laptop and it's much faster. It's about twice the speed in terms of typing and just getting stuff out. 
And then I do notice that I'll read the message briefly. And then if it's something that requires more thought, I actually mark it as unread. I don't know if you guys, well, Dave, you don't have an iPhone, but for iPhones, you can mark a text message as unread even after you've read it and you've a reminder to go back to it. It's kind of the same thing as... I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, so I'm, you can do it on the phone too. So I used to resist reading a message because I, if I knew there was a to-do item in it, and then I would almost procrastinate on it, on opening it up because I knew once I opened it up, it was just forever a task that... I'd have to write down it in another place. Yeah, dude, spot on. You are like so describing. Like I even, like if my wife accidentally reads one of my text messages, I get like super annoyed. I'm like, no, don't do that. Because like I have to systematically make sure I get back to everybody in order. Because if it gets read by some, you know, for some reason, I didn't know that I could unread it. So I'd be like, dude, I have to stop what I'm doing, write it down, respond right away. Otherwise it gets lost in oblivion. Yeah, so mark it as unread and that'll really help. With. Yeah, that'll, that literally changed my life, bro. Not even living. That's pretty amazing. Dave, what do you do? Because I know with you and I, we talk on Messenger a lot. Are you texting on your phone a lot with people or are you all your friends talk on Messenger with you? For the most part, I try and keep it on Messenger because I get that on my computer. I get that on my iPad. I get that on my phone. So I, I get it and my computer. So I get it everywhere, right? Um, whereas text messages, they tend to get buried and it's really easy for me to forget them because of just the problem that you guys were describing. Like, and there, nowadays I'm getting texted by a lot of other land investors. So I get more, more junk texts than ever <laughs> now. And so, um, I think, uh, my suggestion would be, I think, I guess part of it I would go to why I do it is because being in the financial planning industry, it was so critical. You know, if someone wants money or needs something done, you you better try and work to get it done. You're talking about responsiveness, right? Yeah, responsiveness. And part of it's the organization too. Like my email inbox, like my wife, God bless her heart, she's she's great at connecting with people. But like her email inbox has like four thousand emails. I couldn't do it. Like I gotta I gotta keep that number to ten or under. Because otherwise I'd go crazy. So I think th- those kind of organization things is what's allowing me to grow and scale with the team that I have. And I think in regards to Jaren's question, is it right or is it wrong? Well, I think it depends on the kind of work that you're doing. Like if you're a financial advisor, you can't wait two days to get back to somebody. Like that, that ain't going to work. If someone has someone that calls in from land, right? They want to sell their land to you or they want to find out more. Or they want to buy land. Like you better get on it and respond to that person. Otherwise you can miss out on the deal. So that has been so important to me. And that's how I've ran my business. I think if you're doing like blog posts, you're doing YouTube videos, you know, you're really a content creator, as I know Jaron has been, that requires a much more concentrated skill set. Although I would argue nowadays with AI and chat GPT and stuff, you know, you have a lot of assistance that can help you crank out content quickly, and it's going to even get better. So I think that kind of skill set is, is going to be less important than humans replying to other humans and being a responsive person. You know, I want to ask you guys, because I, I learned a trick today. I actually tried it on Jaron and Asiya, and I tried it on Ajay, where if you send someone a voice message, they immediately listen to it because they don't, when you see it pop up and it just says voice memo, and Dave, you sent me one recently. Mm-hmm. 
a few days ago. You don't know what it says in there because with a text message, you can pre-screen it, right? So you know how urgent it is. But with a voice memo, you know it's like one minute and 29 seconds worth of something. (laughs) You just can't wait. You can't wait and you immediately listen to it. And so for Jaren and Sia, I was just telling them, it was a 10 second message telling them that I'm grateful for them. But I'm wondering if that's like a trick we can use. If there's someone we want to access, we want to elicit a response sooner rather than later. Like a dirty little trick is send them a voice memo because it's more personal and they open it sooner. That's good. I love it. I think that could work. Yeah, I like that idea a lot too, Drew. I, I often will do that even via Slack. Like I prefer even in like emails to send Loom videos or to send voice memos because I feel like writing takes so much more effort because there's all these rules around grammar and like all the, even if you're doing like something more informal, like a text message, like you have to make sure that it comes across as like at least legible. You know what I mean? Like it, it should be something that could be understood to some degree, right? Whereas if you talk, it's just, at least for me, Maybe if you're introverted or, or what have you, you could struggle here. But for me, it's like so second nature just to like run my mouth, you know, podcasting and videos and what have you that I prefer that format. However, I will say some people will, like I have a friend named uh, Clark Allen, actually, who I used to send voice memos to. And he actually like pulled me aside one day and was like, bro, can you just text me? Because like, <laughs> sit there and listen to you go on and on and on. I just want to kind of like keep the highlights and have it be punchy. So I think it ultimately just depends on who you're talking to and what have you. I just opened my text to see Ajay. All of us know Ajay. He's extremely busy. And I sent him a voice memo and I got a response within 30 minutes. So I sent the voice memo. Then right after I sent a text that said, not urgent, listen to at the end of your day. And then I still got an immediate response. So that that's a very anecdotal proof of my theory. To be fair though, Ajay is pretty responsive. Even though he's very busy, he's a pretty, yes. he's pretty responsive. If you want to see if it really works, I'd send it to uh, Callan. She's similar to me sometimes. That is true, yeah. <laughs> well, circling uh, back to land a little bit. Dave, what would you say is kind of your secret sauce or your... I guess, bread and butter approach to the land business. Are you mostly a terms guy, cash guy, combination, bass boat property, desert squares? What's your forte? So I often tell people, Jaron, I love to experiment and try stuff. I got started on the terms. And before I talk numbers, I just want to say, no matter where you're at in this business, I don't want anyone to like be, I don't know, I guess, feeling bad that you're not where someone else is at because there's always someone else ahead of you. There's people that are way ahead of doing what I'm doing. So as I talk about these numbers, you know, just please keep that in mind, everyone who's listening. This is me and my situation. Yours is different. It's, it's all good. You are where you are. I'm where I'm at. And let's all just keep on trying to grow together. So right now I have about 430 properties that are paying me terms. Some of those are cheaper properties. Some of those are more expensive properties. Uh, but altogether, it's close to about a, a million a year that's coming in. So about 80000 a month is the gross before paying out other people in my sales team and, and stuff like that. So that's substantial, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's a lot of terms contracts. And part of the reason why I have a huge team to manage that, you know, is quite the thing. When someone defaults, when someone pays off a property, when someone needs to be followed up with, you have to have a huge team to manage that kind of volume. 
And so I, I've loved those. And those are really all over the country and all different sizes, all different dollar amounts, everything from $60,000 properties down to $2,000 properties. If you look at my average note, it's close to about $200 a month is my average note. So it's my average is not the $99 terms property, but it's not a $500 a month payment either, right? So that's my term side. If you look on my cash side, that's probably close to another million bucks. So I got about a $2 million business. This is just generation family properties, not even talking about family freedom lands or Southern family lands. So that's just my mainland company. So it's been great, been a blessing. I like to call my business now a purple ocean business. It's not blue. It's not red. It's a combination. And the reason why I want to do it that way is just like in financial planning is all about diversification, right? Sometimes some areas do better than others. Just like when stocks are down, sometimes bonds are doing better. Sometimes stocks are doing better and bonds suck as in a typical kind of year like this year. So um, that's the reason why I'm building a purple ocean business where now to me, I put a cap on the number of terms contracts I want to have, which is 500. So we are more than 80% of the way, almost 90% of the way to my cap. And at that point, I only want to do um, more cash properties. I was telling Drew, I was so happy. I had, for me, what was my biggest cash sale ever that just closed in uh, Door County, Wisconsin. I can talk about it a little bit if you guys want. Yeah, because we were just there. My parents lived there and I was just there. Jaron was there a year ago. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of my theories was Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona, the, kind of the smile states, the, the ones that go make a smile, if you will, from Washington State down to California, all the way over to Florida, and then back back up north to New York we're all very highly trafficked, right? So let me stay closer to home of trying Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan. And so I mailed Door County was one of the counties that that I mailed. And uh, Drew, you and I were talking about this a year ago when, when you came to the Landon conference, uh, which was just 10 of us. And I had started at that time. And so um, send out offers. And um, part of the process I do with having my big team is I do a lot of access scrubbing, meaning that I have a VAs that go property by property by property to look to see, do we think that there's physical access, legal access? Is it by a lake? Is it um, have this characteristic and that characteristic? You know, something they could do on MapRite within a few minutes. So like in Door County, our mailer list got down from like I think it was eight or 9,000 down to two or three. So if you do the math on that, it will say a mailer is costing you 60 cents a piece, which sometimes, you know, if you're doing color and, and stuff, it might be 90 cents a piece, or it might be as cheap as 50 cents a piece. So let's just say it's 60. That savings on the mail was literally thousands of bucks. And it cost me 500 or 600 bucks to scrub those out. And so my mailers became very concentrated. And so um, of, out of all of everything in that county, we picked up a property where there was a uh, family where dad had died, mom had died, and they inherited the property. And we were negotiating, taking a look at it, and uh, we bought it for like 80000 bucks. And talked to the realtor. She said, yeah, I'm going to put it up for one seventy. 
And then um, first time ever for me, there was a bidding war over the property. We bought it on a Friday. By Tuesday or Wednesday, we had a $200,000 offer on it. Love so it. we uh, we closed on it. And literally just uh, five days ago, I got a $110,000 check. My biggest check I've ever gotten, six-figure check from that sale. All for me. I didn't have to split it with anybody. It was beautiful. So you did a double closing? No, it wasn't a double close because I thought, you know, I didn't want to put a binder on it thinking that, gosh, it, it might take a year for this thing to sell. I didn't know. <laughs> but we bought it ourselves in cash on a Friday. And then it uh, this was like middle of July. And then it ended up the sale completing like the, the end of August. And that's all from the tip that I gave you about Door County. I'm starting to feel a little bit, uh, I don't know how I should feel about that. <laughs> I know, right? So I can thank you for it, Drew. I need to send you a gift. I just want one ride in your Corvette. That's all I want. You, you know I don't do that. Honda Accords all the way. Good old reliable Japanese car. I don't roll in a Beamer like you do. And that's true. <laughs> and what I noticed about all you Minneapolis people, so Kellen's there. I guess Ajay's not Minneapolis, but everyone who's successful, extremely successful, but still lives in the Midwest, all you guys stick to the very frugal Japanese cars. And it's it's almost like a value system where if you were to buy something nicer, I guess in that culture, you guys, you feel like you look irresponsible buying something really nice. Or flashy. Yeah. Versus here in LA, if you drive a normal Japanese car, you actually look like you almost look unsuccessful. I don't know how to phrase it in a way where it doesn't sound elitist, but here's here's the thing, Drew, for me. You know, I was raised in Southern California, right? So I went to high school down there and did everything. Right. The, the way I was raised, which um, my mom was from Idaho, then moved to California. My dad was from Washington State, moved to California. You know, just the family I was brought up in, you know, was that kind of material stuff doesn't matter. I would rather invest that money rather than spend it on a material good. Because for me, that doesn't really mean much. And so even though I'm a California boy, I consider myself a Californian. You know, I'm, I'm, I think in the Midwest, there's just as many people that roll great cars. You know, I see, I see Aston Martins around here and Teslas and everything. It's just, I think it's just a family to family culture thing than necessarily just the Midwest. Well, maybe it's anecdotal evidence, but my sister said her dream car is a Subaru Forester. <laughs> I mean, that's her dream car. It's like a the most expensive one you can get is like a forty thousand dollar Subaru Forester. So Callan drives the the Rav Four. Aja has the uh, what's the Honda version, the CRV. I don't know. I think it's a value thing. I enjoy going really fast on my way to Tucson because I go there once a month now. But it's interesting the different uh, value systems and my parents would never, ever, ever consider not getting a Japanese car. Ever. Yeah, I will say for my wife being from Kazakhstan, you'll notice a lot of Central Asians will come to America and the first thing they'll get is a Toyota. Because in Kazakhstan, they have very harsh winters, apparently. And every other car except the Toyota, in the dead of winter, you have to wake up and actually turn your engine on and mm. so that it doesn't freeze over and so that your car will actually work in the morning. But you don't have to do that with a Toyota. So in their mind, they actually think that the status symbol of arriving is a Toyota. So in my house, we pretty much always will drive either a Lexus or a Toyota because of that fact. Or I might throw in a Tesla in there. 
I would, I'd love a Turaka Tesla. I think it'd be fun. Well, you know, the most engineered, the o- most over-engineered vehicle in the entire world is the Toyota Land Cruiser. Have you guys heard of that one? Uh-uh. Toyota Land Cruiser. So they don't really sell it here anymore, but they're like, a, it's like a $100,000 SUV. And if you still want to look frugal to your frugal friends and then <laughs> to your flashy friends, you're, you're driving a $100,000 car that still has the Toyota stamp on it. Love it. Like, they just stopped selling it like a year ago. Well, hey, guys. I know we kind of went a little all over the place, wanting to circle it back to land. Dave, with your success in both cash deals, your Purple Ocean business, terms deals, and so on, what would be your biggest piece of advice to people first getting started? Because to you know, I think in one way or another – pretty much everybody is trying to get to where you're at and you know, it can be challenging, especially let's say there's somebody listening right now who just did their first mailer and they sent 3000 units of mail and it didn't work. They, you know, the leads came in and they were dumpy and they're discouraged. What Mm -hmm. would you say to them and what would be your advice to them? Good question. I think, um, first I feel so lucky and blessed you guys when we started in this business, you know, there was, less competition. There was less capital available out there than there is today. So uh, for, for the person just starting, you know, I feel for you. You know, it takes more gumption now to really get over the hump, I think, than what a lucky and blessed time were we to be in during COVID where everything could sell quickly. And so many of us were running out of inventory. Today, where maybe the economy is slowing down some, it's harder. But that being said, that doesn't mean it's impossible. But just remember, the the next one is on the corner. I can't even tell you how many mailers I've had that have bombed because maybe pricing was off. Maybe we didn't do enough screening and trying to figure out how to better extract out of that mailer. So I would just say if you love it and you're interested in it and you have a passion for it, then you just have to keep on keeping on because the gold's out there. You know, you look at that Door County, Wisconsin deal I had. We just bought that in July. So they're out there. And that may not be Door County, that might be someplace else. You know, I just had a deal come across my desk today in Ohio. So people are buying and selling land in Ohio. So I would encourage people to really dig in, really try stuff and know that you might fail more than you have successes. But when you have successes, they can pay off for all of those failures and then a whole, whole, whole bunch more. Yeah. And if, if, if you're willing to take that risk, you know, this, this is how people become multimillionaires, you know, it, it's just really um, being careful. Um, but at the same time, at the end of the day saying, forget it, I'm just going to try and let's see what happens. I want to see what you guys think about this land geek. I think I picked it up from them where they teach that there's different market cycles and there's some market cycles where it's easy to buy, but hard to sell. And then So that was like pre-COVID. And then during COVID, it was hard to buy, easy to sell. And then now what I believe we're in, we're in kind of a transitional state where we're going back to the status quo of easy to buy, hard to sell, at least on the low end stuff. But what happens when it's transitioning is the margins get squeezed because the sellers the sellers still think they have covid pricing right and then the buyers have kind of dropped off so when you're entering so like 2020 we're entering the high season i'm picturing a graph in my mind it spreads widen 
right? Because the sellers still think they have a loser property and the buyers are willing to pay much more for it. Now we're kind of on the downslope where the margins are going to get squeezed. Do you guys see that? Do you guys think that's a good way of seeing it? Or do you see the market a different way? What do you think about that? I think um, you're, you're right, Drew, in so many ways. You know, just um, the market is different. It's shifted. The other thing I would add to what you just said, too, is I think so many people are tied to the either the blue ocean model or the red ocean model that they don't mix the two. And I think it's the intersection of the two in this environment that's going to help people out. You know, you might have to do terms when you're used to doing cash. And then you might be able to sell that note if it's a good enough property, if you want to get cash out of it, or you just might need to hold it. On the other hand, if you're used to doing a bunch of terms properties and you bought it at a more expensive price, you might have to dump it and maybe break even or even lose a little bit of money in order to move on and get your cash back to find a better deal. So... I think mm. the, those times are coming. I know for me, I've been cutting inventory prices on quite a few things that even though I, I just talked about that success, uh, there's properties every single month that I'm cutting. Some of them have been in inventory for a year that we just happened to buy the wrong thing at the wrong time and stuff that was hot isn't hot anymore. So we're just having to unload inventory and move on. You know, I think we still have that Klamath property that we land up from you. <laughs> yeah. So we're actually selling our first note right now. I'm really excited to just try it out. It's a buy for 17. Actually, this is a deal that came from Jaron and Asia. Buy for 17. We're selling it for 40 on terms at 10.9% interest. And we're selling the note at 80% of face value. So we're getting 32 out of it. So we're almost doubling our money. And that really opened up our buyer's pool maybe even doubled our buyer's pool where we can now have a whole extra channel to dispo properties where originally we would have had to keep the note in-house and take maybe two to three years to recoup our investment or just say no to all the terms buyers and only try to sell it cash. Love it. That's awesome. I think the other thing too, you guys, that I've realized about this business is it's just horribly tax inefficient. And the best way that you could make it tax efficient is by getting equity partners on properties or using debt. And I, I kind of knew that coming into it, but I always kept on just putting my own money back into the business. And now I'm not doing that. And it's allowing me to extract so much money from my land business by using more debt than ever. Like I'm using debt for mailers, I'm using debt for um, buying properties, and like that Door County, Wisconsin property, for example, if I had done an equity partner instead of debt on that, then I would have had like $50,000 less or more on that property. Explain what you mean by tax inefficient and using debt or equity partners. What do you mean by that? So let's take an example of this Door County, Wisconsin property, right? So it cost me 80,000 bucks. What I didn't mention is I used a hard money lender, Eric Schraga, for $60,000 of that. And then I put in 20K of my own capital. Mm -hmm. In that particular case, so my, my money into the property was 20 grand, right? So 75% of it wasn't me. Well, on the backside, I paid Eric 20% of that, which was 12,000 bucks, which meant all the rest of the proceeds went to me. So what was my ROI? It was... $110,000 is what I got back. I mean, that's a 5X on my money. 
Oh, I see. So it's it's not really a tax thing. It's it's a efficient use of capital. Well, it's it's also a tax thing too, right, Drew? Like, let's say instead in that same scenario, let's say that I used eighty thousand dollars of my own money, right, to buy the deal. Right. I sell it. Let's say I get the money back, and I put all of that money back into more land. Well, now I owe taxes on one hundred and ten thousand dollars of that gain, but I don't have that money in my bank account. Okay. Whereas if I use Eric in this particular case, I still have sixty thousand dollars of my money in the bank. I didn't have to tap. Oh, I see. So yeah, it's it's like a cash management, cash availability dance that you're doing, that you're learning. Mm-hmm. That's why your check was for hundred ten grand because Eric cut you the check. Uh, Eric didn't cut me the check. The title company did. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool though. So I did want to kind of chime in on your guys's dialogue there about, you know, the current market trends. I do appreciate and totally kind of see similar things happening in the market and, you know, all that. But I do want to caution the listener a little bit. Sometimes I think people can be over analytical about market trends or other factors like direct mail spend or et cetera, et cetera. Take your pick. And they kind of allow these things to be excuses yeah. as to why they're not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I really want to just bring the point home that regardless of what market cycle we're in, the best time to get started in the land business was 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, the second best time to get started in the land business is today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so just want to reemphasize that to everyone that every single market Every single time period is going to have pros and cons and nuances that you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and figure out and you know get your hands dirty. But don't let that be an excuse for being successful because you didn't start in the quote unquote golden days because those golden days change constantly. I've been around sure. real estate long enough in the household selling world and you know land and other places that there's always a period. For a long time, it was before the 2008 crash. Now people are talking about COVID and and to a degree it is true. And again, I'm not disregarding anything that you guys said here, but I just want people to know that if you just put the hustle on and you don't worry about that kind of stuff and you just like get to work, you'll be successful. So. It's like the golden age is always the age that just happened. Like in the army, the joke is that your previous unit is the most squared away unit you've ever been in and your current unit is the worst unit you've ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been exposed to multiple different business models now, and I'm getting into multifamily. I'm getting into modular boxes. I'm getting into, I'm already doing funding with Jaron. And I still tell people, I just told a friend, he works in the Pentagon. He's not sure what kind of business he wants to start. I still believe 110% that starting a land flipping business is hands down the best business to start if you are just getting into it. Are you going to become a billionaire with a land flipping business? Probably not. There's other businesses that are better for that. But if you want to get to your first million or your first five million, I believe it's the best vehicle to do that. Totally. Well, I still look at it, right? And look at the capital that you need. That was one of the things that attracted me to the land business in the first place was you could buy a property for a thousand or two thousand or three thousand dollars. And it's still that way today. You can still do that right now. And so it doesn't take a lot of capital. You can buy 10 of those with 10 grand, right? I mean, 
How many houses could you buy with 10 grand? Maybe one in the ghetto of Indianapolis. <laughs> right? We uh, did a, a Zoom call with House Flipper about a year ago, and he showed us his entire business model and all these fancy spreadsheets. And the general equation was he had to put in 50 grand of his own money to you know to buy a $250,000 house, and then he exits at 350 and he it spits out 50 for him at the end. So he puts in 50 and he gets 50 at the very end. So he was doubling his money on every project, but the amount of, which is similar to what Land is doing, right? But the amount of work that he does was four to t- five times more than what a land flipper does. Um, and in fact, think about a house flipper. He has to go through closing twice, just like we do. He has to talk to sellers. He has to talk with buyers, or maybe not with buyers. The realtor does that. But he has to do everything a land flipper does, plus he has to actually fix something. And so I do think that the land flipping business model is still superior to anything I've been exposed to, at least. Yeah, it's very 80-20. Well, with that, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on the show. If people want to connect with you, what's the best place to send them? You got a link for us? Yeah, there's so many different places they can go. But if anyone just wants to connect, you know, I throw out to anyone, hey, if you want to get together, chat for 30 minutes, talk land, learn more about my businesses, what I'm doing, maybe you can share with me what you're doing, uh, contact Robbie. His email is assistant at daviddeniston.com. We could do a 30-minute strategy session and chat and say, hey, and get to know one another. Uh, Alternatively, if you want to follow some of the mastermind stuff that we're doing in the Land Unconference, you could go to landunconference.com. And if you apply there, you will have early access to um, the next events that we'll be having. So there's some great stuff cooking. Excited for this Puerto Rico trip that we're, we're all doing together. So don't miss the boat, literally. Hey, thanks, Dave. Well, I hope that this is the first of many to come, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you.